How many have ever been tempted? Come on. How many expect to be tempted again sometime soon? It's universal, isn't it? We all understand that unique challenge. So we want to learn as much as we can today from two characters in the Old Testament who were tempted. One resisted successfully, the other did not. One is Joseph from Genesis chapter 39, and the other is King David from 2 Samuel 11. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to those references. If not, we'll project those words on the screen for you. As you're turning there, let me just uh, encourage you one more time about the special program we're beginning next Sunday morning, 10 o'clock and this hour, 11.15, over in the sanctuary called Growing You. It's a Bible study for adults. And you may have seen the tagline underneath the icon we use for Growing You. It said, Becoming a People of One Book. Becoming a People of One Book. And I'll tell you where we got that phrase. We, we inherited it from our father in the Methodist church, the Methodist movement, our father, John Wesley. And back in the middle of the 18th century, Wesley was a man who, who was passionate about his investment in the, in the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. And he made this statement. I want to share it with you. He said, I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf. Till a few moments from now, I will be seen no more. I will drop into an unchangeable eternity. He said, because of that truth, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. There's a wise man right there. He knows that life is short. We're just passing through, and soon we'll all be in an unchangeable eternity. And he said, God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Wesley said, oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. And he said, I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. And then this phrase, let me be a man of one book. It's inspiring. It's encouraging to us. And I want to just nudge you one more time to consider investing your life in studying the Bible. We're going to be rehearsing the book of Genesis the first four weeks of Growing You beginning next Sunday morning, and I hope you'll uh, want to be part of it. I can tell you, if I weren't over here uh, preaching, I would be over there engaging the Bible study. It should be lots of fun and very informative, so be encouraged to uh, be part of that. All right, if you have your Bibles now, I'm going to read our text first from Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39, and you will be familiar, perhaps, with this passage of Scripture which is the temptation that came to Joseph by Potiphar's wife. And then we will see the temptation of King David with Bathsheba. So as you're able, would you please stand to hear God's word? I'll be reading verses 6 through 12 of Genesis 39. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. 
She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. There's a successful resistance right there. Now over to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read the first five verses there. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Now please make a mental note of that. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And may God help us today understand the way around temptation through these stories. You may be seated. Thanks so much. There is hardly a topic that so thoroughly unifies Christians and yet is seldom talked about. I would challenge you to try to remember the last time you heard a sermon on the subject of temptation. It's just not referred to very often, but certainly something that is pertinent to every one of our lives. You'll note on your bulletin there, the outline, that I have seven points. So we're going to go through those seven points very quickly today. And so I hope you have your pen ready and ready to fill in those blanks. The first point is this. Everyone is tempted. All are tempted. We're all susceptible to temptation. There's no point where we are impregnable to the assault that temptation represents in our lives. Now, here is King David. He is the king of Israel. His life is lived in bold capital letters. He has done dynamic things. He has defeated enemies. He has killed a giant. He has killed a lion with his bare hands. He is the political and spiritual leader of a great nation, Israel. Everything about his life has been dynamic. And yet he, too, is susceptible to temptation and to sin. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 with me. It's a, put it on the screen for you. The Apostle Paul writes and tells us that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So in other words, all of us are tempted with all different kinds of temptations. It's common to humanity. But God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear but when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so you can endure it. So there's a great promise that even in the midst of temptation, which we all experience, God is faithful, and if we lean on him, rely on him, he can get us through. So all are tempted. Here's the second point. You want to write this down. New temptations will arise in your life. Depending on the season, the circumstance of your life, new temptations will come. Temptations that you haven't had to deal with before. Prior to this moment, things like pride or ego or materialism, lust of the flesh, evil thoughts, anger, rebellion, these sorts of things come up because of circumstances in our lives and we are now placed with pressure to sin, to make poor choices in areas of our lives that we didn't experience prior. Let me ask you this question. If you had approached King David a day or two before the temptation with Bathsheba, and if you know the rest of that story, he not only impregnated Bathsheba, but then he conspired to have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed in battle. And so he's guilty not only of the sin of, of adultery, 
but he's guilty of the sin of conspiracy and also the sin of murder. If you had asked David a few days, even just a few hours before the temptation with Bathsheba, do you think that you're capable of the sins of adultery and conspiracy and murder? What do you think David would have said? He said, no way, no chance. Not in a million years would I do those sorts of things. And we have to be careful too, because we might assume that we are not susceptible to certain sins when in fact new temptations will arise in our lives. So remind yourself, there's never going to be a point this side of heaven where there's not some kind of temptation that can't reach your life. Here's a third point. You ready? Letting uh, uh, David's idleness leads to failure. Idleness leads to failure. Letting your life wander can lead to destruction. It's interesting, our passage in 2 Samuel here, verse 1, it says, it was the spring of the year when kings go out to, to battle. What should have been in this particular verse is the parentheses, it was the spring of the year when David should have gone out to battle. It's the time of the year when he should have been out there. Now what happens? David, instead of going out with his army, he stays home. And he's idle. And he's just killing time. He's just burning minutes. And so the reason he's tempted some night when he can't sleep, he gets up. And he uh, goes out on his balcony and he sees this beautiful woman across the way. And the reason he's up and susceptible to this moment is because he's got all this energy. He hasn't been doing anything all day. How many of you have ever used the phrase, idleness is the devil's workshop? Or an idle mind is the devil's workshop? You've used that with your kids or your grandkids. You say it because you know it's true. That mischief follows when people aren't positively engaged. And so if you're under... Great temptation right now. You feel lots of pressure to make poor choices or to engage in wrong behavior, wrong activity. Then my first advice to you is to get busy. Get engaged. Do something. Uh, find your purpose and begin to fulfill it. Lead someone to Jesus. Volunteer to serve. Find a need and meet it. Get engaged. What I've discovered in my life, I can give you a personal testimony in the, in the seasons of my life when I have been intentionally and actively engaged in God's best plan for my life, the purpose of God for my life, it tends to reduce my level of stress. Watch this. Now, I'm busy. I'm tired. I'm working. I'm engaged. I'm active. But it tends to reduce my level of stress and raise the power I have over temptation. When I become idle and less engaged, and less intentional, and less active, these are the moments that I find that temptation rises in my life. And so it's just a good idea to stay busy, a good idea to stay, in, stay engaged. The, the danger that we have with these increasing hours of leisure time in America is that people don't understand that leisure time, leisure time is, is for the purpose of renewing your soul and refreshing your body, and not just for personal self-indulgence. And so stay engaged in a purposeful way and it will help you make your way through temptation. Now here's point number four. See how we're moving along? Number four, write this down. David failed because he failed to intercept the temptation at the first moment. The first moment. St. Augustine, one of the saints of history, wrote a prayer that is very insightful and instructive. This was his prayer. Now, remember, the point is, 
capture temptation at the first impulse, the first moment. Here was his prayer. Listen to St. Augustine. He said, O Lord, give me chastity and give me confidence, but not right now. Do you understand his prayer? Give me chastity, give me uh, uh, confidence, but not, not in this moment. Lord, help me to be more and more like Jesus, just not today. Lord, help me to, to develop a godly character, become a virtuous person, just not right now. What we need to remember is that sin forms in our lives and, and habits form in our lives as a result of a first step, a first impulse, a first thought. The place where you do the most battle, listen now, the place where you do the most battle with temptation is in your thoughts. Now, whether that thought comes from your own flesh and you know, the carnal nature of your own flesh or the evil nature of the world around you or the devil himself, wherever that thought originated, it comes and is the first line in this long line of poor choices. So if you can stop temptation at the first impulse, the first thought, that is the best place to stop, stop it. Because here's the adage, if I sow a thought, I'll reap an act. If I sow an act, I'll reap a habit. If I sow a habit, I'll reap a lifestyle. If I sow a lifestyle, I'll reap a destiny. And so it goes from a thought to an act to a habit to a lifestyle to a destiny. And you and I can name the names of people we know personally who did not stop the temptation at the first impulse, the first thought, and it led to to activity and then to habitual activity and then to a lifestyle, chronic lifestyle of misbehavior, and then ultimately to a destiny. And there are people who live today in the dysfunction of poor choices accumulated over time, and even in the expression of of generational curses that have not only lasted the lifetime of an individual who did not stop a bad thought at its origin all the way to living their life in such a way that it affected their children and their children after them and their children after them. And so the place, the best place to stop sin in your life is at the first thought of the opportunity for it. Listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. This is a very important verse. It says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, here the Apostle Paul teach. He said, we want to destroy speculation, imaginations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And everything, in other words, everything that's not according to God's will, God's plan, God's thoughts for your life then we're, we're going to pull those down. We're going to destroy the speculation. We're going, to, we're going to stop imagining my life filled with sin. So we're destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And then this phrase, listen, and we are bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, Paul's teaching us here that when the thought comes, the impulse comes, hey, did you think about doing that, tasting that, touching that, engaging in that? At that thought... That's the place where you bring it captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, is this a thought that Jesus would be honored me to think about? Is it good? Is it lovely? Is it pure? Is it gracious? Is it worth repeating? Is it to my benefit? If the answer is no, then push that thought out of your head. Let me just advise you about something. You are the one who decides what you think about. 
my mind sometimes it just goes, it just goes over there and I can't stop it from it. Yes, you can. You're, you're deciding right now what you're thinking about. Some of you are thinking about chocolate chip cookies. Some of you are thinking about lunch. Some, some of you are thinking about the football game. Some of you are thinking about this sermon. But you're choosing to think about whatever it is that's in your mind right now. Yes? And if a bad thought comes in your mind, you can choose not to think about that. We do this all the time, don't we? A thought comes in our head and you say, you know, you're, you're going to die. You've got, you've, got a, you've got a terminal disease. That's it. That's why you have that pain. And that, that's what it is. You're just, you're just going to be dead. And that thought comes in your head and you go, that's, that's not true. That's not, gonna, that's not right. Get out of my head, d- dumb devil. And, and so we do this all the time, right? You know, something's going to happen to your children. Something bad's going to happen. Yeah, just it's going to happen. What? Let me ask you, is that good, pure, lovely, gracious? This is Philippians 4 Worth repeating? Worthy of praise? No. Then get out. Get out of my mind. Get out of my head. I'm not thinking about that. I'm think about something else. And live in an honorable way with your thought life. And so this is it. Um, you, you intercept the temptation at the first thought. Joseph stopped it at the first moment. He said, look, this uh, woman, Potiphar's wife, comes on to him. She is probably a middle-aged woman. Potiphar owns this huge estate. Joseph is young. He's handsome. He's smart. He's high capacity. He's all sparkly. He's a, he's a, he's a wonderful young man. And she thinks he's all that. So she comes on to him. Uh, you may not know her, but maybe you saw her. She was one of the uh, real housewives of Cairo. Maybe you saw that episode when Potiphar's wife was on there. So she's one of those women. And she comes on to Joseph in a really ego-building proposition. I mean, it's, it's this older, beautiful woman, and she's coming on. And you say, well, Joseph, Joseph, uh, he, you know, he, he was such a sterling character. No wonder he resisted temptation. Wait a minute. I want to submit to you that no one, no one you can even imagine had more opportunity to sin than Joseph did. Think about this. He was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. He's not in his home town anymore. He's not even in his home country anymore. He's, he's a slave in Potiphar's house. Potiphar owns him like a cow. He has no rights. He has no property ownership. He has none of that. He's, he's in a, an isolated place, no family around, no friends around. It's just Joseph. He's a slave in a house. And there he is. No one's going to know. It's almost like what happens in, in Potiphar's house stays in Potiphar's house. No one's going to find out. He's just there. He has all this opportunity. And, and why couldn't he rationalize it? Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. My brothers betrayed me. My family thinks I'm dead. No one cares if I'm alive. What's it matter what I do? No one had a better opportunity to sin than Joseph did. But he cut that thing off. He, when she came on to him, he said, how could I possibly do such a wicked thing and commit adultery against your husband and sin against the God I serve? What, a, what a, an inspiring story this is. What a, what a life of integrity. Joseph is one of those guys that we should model our lives after. Because Joseph had established boundaries in his life. He had decided what he was going to do and what he wasn't going to do. He decided that in relationship, these are the lines that I will not cross. He decided in business and in his professional life 
and in his social life. This is, this, these are the boundaries. Every one of us should take note. We should all have these boundaries in place. We should decide way ahead of the time of temptation what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. This is, what, this is what Joseph said to Potiphar's wife. He said, look, it's not going to happen. Not with you, not here, not now, not ever. Because that's a boundary that I'm not going to cross. I say this to young people all the time when they contemplate their own sexual purity before marriage, which it should be the ambition of every teenager in America. And I, say to, and I say them simply this, you have to establish your boundaries before you find yourself in a passionate moment, in the heat of the moment. If you wait, if you wait until you're in the back seat of some guy's car, it's going to be hard to establish the boundaries then. But if you establish those boundaries now, then when the time comes, you'll say, look, no, not here, not with you, not now. This violates, my, this violates my integrity, and I'll not do it. David, on the other hand, he's in this Middle Eastern evening. There's a, you know, the stars are in the sky. He's up and awake because he's been idling away his life. And he sees this temptation, and he says, rather than, how could I do such a thing? He says, how can I resist? And so into Bathsheba, his life comes. He should have stopped it right there. He should have turned to his garden and say, Look, dude, hey, get my swimwear ready. I need to take a long swim in a cold pool. And by the way, rouse some of the guardsmen because, and order pizza. We're going to play some hoops, have some pizza. This boy needed to burn off some energy. That would have been a better solution to the state he found his, his life in. Well, again, intercept the temptation at the first moment. Here's number five. You ready? Number five, embrace short-term discipline for long-term holiness. Embrace short-term discipline for long-term holiness. That, that just sounds good when you hear it, doesn't it? Embrace short-term discipline for long-term holiness. Isn't that the way you want to live your life? You've been hearing me talk about delayed gratification the last couple of weeks. I want to just beat that drum a little bit more today. It's a lost discipline in our culture. Could I say to parents and perhaps grandparents in the room today, parents, listen to me, before God, for God's sake, listen to me. Teach your children how to wait. Teach them how to learn to accept the answer, no. Please do that. Please do that. My, my point is, if your child can't hear no from you, how will they someday hear it from God? Has, how many of you, God's ever said no to you? God said no. No. No, not, not you, not then, not now, not that. No. If you don't teach your children how to hear no, how will they hear it from God? The mother sitting at the dinner table. She's got her little four-year-old son there. His name is Johnny. The husband's out of town. And the mother is a personality type. She wants to please. She wants everybody to be happy all the time. And little Johnny knows that. So he starts yanking his mother's chain, throws a fit because he's got green beans in front of him and he wants chocolate. And so he's throwing this fit, and he's screaming, and he's crying. He said, I'm not going to eat those green beans. I want chocolate. I want chocolate. And the mother had just read an article in the recent parenting, contemporary parenting article magazine, and she realized that if she doesn't keep her children happy, it could damage their little psyches, and so she doesn't want to damage their psyche. And so she gives in to Johnny and gives him some chocolate. 
What she should do instead is grab Johnny by the back of the neck, drag him out of his chair, and, and damage his psyche all the way around the house until <laughs> he gets the message that he should be eating his beans. Thank you. Thank you very much. Little Johnny will grow up, and he'll be a businessman someday, and his 26-year-old secretary will come in, and one day she just gives him that look. And then a few days after that, she'll come in and, and emboldened by the first moment, he'll straighten, she'll straighten his tie. And then a few days after that, she'll come in and lean down close and put her hand on his shoulder and tell him how handsome he is. And the next thing you know, little Johnny, now a grown-up businessman with a wife and children at home, will just say to himself, I want me a piece of chocolate. And the reason hell will break loose in that man's life and in the life of his family is because this is a man who has not learned to wait. Go back to what I said in the beginning of this point. Parents, grandparents, teach your children how to wait. Teach them how to hear the word no. You should say no to your children just for no other reason than to make them wait. It doesn't have to be a reason. Just say no. Make them wait. No. I just had a family this weekend approach me and say, here's our daughter. We, we wanted to uh, say thank you in the church for everything you've done. Uh, she was baptized recently, and she, she turned 12, and she was baptized, and her life is on course, and she wanted to show you that her ears have been pierced because the rule in our house was you can't get your ears pierced until you're 12. And she said to me, thanks, Pastor Greg, for telling my, encouraging my parents to make me wait. I said, you're welcome. I said, you know what's happening to you, don't you? And she said, no. I said, what's happening to you is you're becoming a mature young woman with integrity. And your life is going to go well for you because you've learned how to wait. And when you grow up, you're going to raise children the same way you've been raised. And it's going to be a great blessing to them as well. So what a goofy little example. I mean, that doesn't matter when, do you, when you get your ears pierced. Sure it does. It's just an opportunity to teach delayed gratification. It's just an opportunity for parents to instill that value. I just think it's great. Just, just great. And apparently this little one doesn't have a cell phone yet either. <sighs> Which I think is wonderful. Our boys were growing up in the age when everyone had a cell phone. It was the first generation of folks were having cell Everybody had a cell phone. They came home. Our oldest son was a junior in high school and he didn't have a cell phone. He came home and he said, everybody has a cell phone. I said, not everybody has a cell phone because you don't. <laughs> what, if I, what if I'm in an emergency? I said, borrow your friend's cell phone. He'll have one. <laughs> Couldn't care less. <laughs> well, let's move on. Let's move on. Here's number six. Watch this now. We're learning about temptation and how to deal with it. Temptation feeds on secrecy. It feeds on it. Don't tell anyone about this. Nobody else is in the house. Nobody will ever know. It's just you and me, Joseph in the house. It'll just be between us. 
Listen, we ought, to, we, ought to be able to, we ought to be able to go to a brother, trusted brother in the church, man to man or woman to woman in the church and say to them, please pray for me. I am being tempted in this area of my life. I don't know why. I don't know why I feel so susceptible to this sin. Please pray for me and would you please hold me accountable? And what I've just described to you makes perfect sense, I know, but it is so rarely practiced in the life of the church because we, are, we get so whacked out. We get so warped about this kind of thing. We get the impression that everybody else in the church has it all together and that we are unique, that no one suffers temptation like we do. In this area, this category, I must be a mess. I don't even know. I can't even believe I'm a Christian and I, and I suffer from this kind of temptation. And, and so we isolate ourselves and we deny the fact that anybody else has any other problems. And so we hesitate to share that problem, that temptation with another person to gather their support and encourage my own life. But we should be able to do this. Temptation feeds on the isolation. It feeds on the secrecy and the assumption that nobody else is going through this except me. And it's not true. It is not true. Years ago, uh, Dr. Terry Takel and I were lead, leading in a conference in another city, and Terry's been here, and he's this apostle of prayer, and he's been a great blessing to us here at Union Chapel. He's a mentor to me. Terry's about 10 years older than I am, and I was uh, also in this conference, and we broke for lunch, and there were a bunch of young pastors who were in the session that we were leading, and they asked if they could tag along with us to go to lunch. We said, great, that'd be perfect. So there's about eight of us, and we went into this very nice restaurant, and we all sat down. So here are Terry and myself, and then these six or so young, young pastors. And we were all sitting there talking shop, talking church and all that. And the waitress came through this little swinging door from the kitchen, just adjacent to our table. And when she came through the door and to our table, now, before I describe what happened, all you women, please, I'm, I apologize for bringing this up. This is, this is like a stupid male thing. And women have trouble connecting with it. So just be patient as I describe the story. Every man in the room will know exactly what I'm talking about. And you'll connect with it immediately so you won't have any problem with this. This woman came, came out of the kitchen toward our table, 20-something woman. And let me describe her. She was spectacular. <laughs> Literally, she was a world-class beauty. She was a beautiful young woman. I mean, in every way. And to make it worse or better, depending on your point of view, she was wearing her little sister's black dress. <laughs> I don't know how she got in that dress. She came sashaying up to the table. <laughs> now, imagine the context. She doesn't know we're a bunch of preachers. She's just going for a big tip. That's her job. She comes up there and she stops, but she doesn't stop because her perfume now cascades over the top of this table and hits everybody in the face and just washes over us. And I just thought, holy Toledo. <laughs> and then I thought, this, this is really going to create some tension. And so this is the way my brain works. I'm funny. But I just, I just started looking around going, okay, how are these, how these pastors going to deal with this? And it was hilarious. All you men will understand this. These, these, three of these guys immediately, they glanced at her, 
and looked away quickly, grabbed their menu and started, just went like this, <laughs> pretending like they didn't notice. Man of God didn't notice the woman. Whatever. They're, here's what they're doing. They're going like this and in, they're making silent prayers. Oh, Jesus, please, no, not this, not now, please. I, I did not look at that woman. I did not look, I didn't look, I didn't even look at her twice. I didn't look at her twice. Not, you can just feel people, and the tension in the room is just filled with, you know, that tension when you know that something's not right. It was hilarious. So she takes our drink orders, and off she goes, sachets back into the kitchen. You can see her just like it was yesterday. <laughs> Let me just enjoy this just for a moment. Yeah, that was really something. So, so we're, and then as soon as she's gone, everybody's okay again. Okay, feels good. Okay, we can talk. Talk about Jesus and talk about the church. It's all good. You can't talk about Jesus around her. <laughs> that, wouldn't be, that, that wouldn't be safe. <laughs> so in a few minutes back, she comes in. Oh, it's more painful the second time. Because everybody now, that's like, she's like the, she's like the, the, the elephant in the room. Now she, here she comes. And she's taking the food orders. And she takes the food orders. And one guy, bless his heart, he got so flustered. I mean, he couldn't even read anymore. He couldn't read his menu. Because this girl, she was something. And it was just intoxicating. And it was one of those moments. you know. She, and, so, and so then she left again. <laughs> and so here's what Terry did. Terry's great. Never cracks a smile. Even when he's telling a funny, funny joke, he never smiles, never winks, none of that. He's just completely deadpan. He just leans back in his chair like this, and he said, you know, brethren, he called everybody brethren. <laughs> it's just like a setup. <laughs> you know, brothers, he said, God has made everything in the world. And these guys, I'm just watching, watching him work. These young guys go, oh, yeah, God has made everything. Praise God. Thank God. Praise the Lord. He's made, he's made it all. And then Terry said, yeah. And God has, made, God has made everybody in the world. Yes, sir, that's true, brother. He has made everybody, everybody in the world. Just little amens around the table. <laughs> then Terry just glances over to that swinging door where she's been coming and going. He just glances over there, and as he's glancing over there, and he said, and you know, God made somebody's especially well. It was great. It was perfect because it just, all the air came out. Of, oh, shh. And everyone went, that is absolutely true. There, there are some bodies that are just God. Praise God. There are some people just made really well. <laughs> Jesus doing some fine work. And, and so he just let it out. But here's the point. In dealing with temptation, watch it now. Don't let it isolate you and so deceive you. Don't let it make you think you're the only one. You know, it's, it's I, I know these other men of God couldn't possibly be tempted by that, but, uh, but I sure am. I must be the only one. No, no. It's common to all of us. And so don't allow it to exist in secrecy. Last point. Ready? Here's number seven. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Now, this is, this is just the first cousin to the last point I just made. Be honest about it. Be honest with what you're dealing with. 
Now back to that little phrase that I mentioned in 2 Samuel. We're, we're 90 seconds from finishing, so we're right there. The plane is final approach. We're about to touch down, just so you know where we are. That little phrase in there that she had, had just concluded her ritual cleansing, there was an Old Testament law, Hebrew law, that said anyone with an issue of blood and menstruation would create that, that you have to, after the menstruation, you have to go through a ritual cleansing. There's a, a ritual process there, so you'd be reinstituted in temple worship and, and re-engaged in relations with your husband. And so it was part of, the, part of the law. And all the Jews knew it. And so here we find it in the parentheses. Here's Bathsheba. She's been delivered to the king's palace so he can have sex with her. He's about to commit adultery with her. And here's this little phrase. She was on the backside of her ceremonial cleansing. Now, the question is this. How, how do we know that's where she was in that process? And the only way we would know the only way David would have known that's where she was in her menstrual cycle is if he asked her. Now get the picture here. This is a man about to commit adultery, but wants to make sure he's not breaking the ceremonial law. Oh, if you're still involved in your ceremonial cleansing, we'll have to put this off for a couple of days. What? What is, isn't that confusing? But here's the explanation. Here's what we know. There is nothing more deceitful than the human heart. Has David deceived himself? Yes. Deceit is all the way through him at this point. He's, he's ready and willing and able to commit adultery, but he didn't want to break one of the cleansing laws. It's goofy, and the reason it's goofy is because of the, the wickedness and the deceit of the human heart. There is nothing more deceitful than the human heart. I'm talking about being honest about your sin. The human heart is deceitfully wicked. Yours too, brother and sister. Mine too. Deceitfully wicked. Well, I, I, know, I know it's adultery, I know that I'm committing adultery with this person, but we love each other. We can't be happy without each other. We know cohabitation is wrong. We know it's not God's best plan for our lives, but look, everybody's doing it, and God's a you know, forgiving God. He'll forgive us. We love each other. We're going to get married anyway, so we're going to go ahead and do it. Wait, I'm asking you to be honest. I know it's wrong to steal, but you know, when it's an insurance company... That's not so bad. And I know I shouldn't cheat on my taxes. I know I shouldn't, but, you know, everybody has undeclared income. It's just the way that goes. And I know I should tithe. I know that God wants me to do that. I should be working toward that. And I should be a tithing person in the church. I should be faithful in this area of my life. I should be a good steward. This part of my I know I should do that. But look. We have expenses, and I haven't had a new car for five years now. When, when is it my turn to have something nice? Someone needed to look David in the face and say, you need to be real. You need to get real and honest and right now. Fussing about ceremonial cleansing laws in the middle of this mess? What's the matter with you? The Bible says, 
that Jesus was acquainted with all the temptation, suffered all the temptation that is common to man, yet without sin. Remember that? Jesus actually experienced every temptation that all of us experience, yet he didn't sin. So here's a guy, therefore, who knows a little bit about how to overcome temptation. This is a guy who knows a little bit about how to get victory over temptation, yeah? So here's my advice to you. We're we're closing. When temptation comes to you, here's the first thing you do. Talk to Jesus. Because he knows a little bit about it. Don't come to him in your rationalization, your spiritualization. Don't come to you in any kind of strength. Just come to him in your weakness. Say, Lord, I admit it. I'm weak. I'm weak, weak, weak. I'm so weak. Please help me. Give me your power. I know you understand how to overcome temptation. Give me the strength I need in this moment to live in my integrity. And God will hear that prayer. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And with the temptation, we'll be able to provide an escape also. So be encouraged in God's faithfulness and trustworthiness as we face into temptation. Did you learn something? I hope you did. Let's pray. Lord, let's uh, pause to give you thanks for these stories, both the success and the compromise in both of these men's lives. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would help us, give us wisdom and insight, give us power and strength, give us the tools we need to face into the temptation that come to our lives because, Lord, we need it. We admit our weakness, our frailty, and our faults. So God empower us, we pray in Jesus' name.